Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and welcome to Master Leadership Through Crisis series, where we will connect with leaders worldwide to gain insights on important questions to help us navigate these rough waters. If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, go to masterleadership.org forward slash podcast. That's masterleadership.org forward slash podcast for more information. Hi, this is Lily, and today we're speaking with Drew Dudley. Most of the leadership on the planet comes from people who don't see themselves as leaders. Drew Dudley, author of the international bestseller, This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters, has dedicated his life to changing that reality. Drew's TED Talk, Everyday Leadership, better known by many as the lollipop moment, has amassed over 5 million views around the web, becoming a fundamental part of training and leadership programs all over the world, and has been voted one of the 15 most inspirational TED Talks of all time. Drew's day one leadership philosophy was developed through his time running Canada's largest student leadership program at the University of Toronto and has been shared with some of the world's most dynamic organizations from McDonald's and J.P. Morgan Chase to the United Nations and the YMCA. The philosophy provides a step-by-step process to identifying and living up to your personal leadership values, and more importantly, to recognizing the leadership impact every individual can choose to have on a daily basis. Welcome, Drew Dudley. How are you? I am doing pretty darn well. I'm sitting in the spot that I've been sitting in for a month, so (laughs) uh, this chair is now nicely set up and, and ready for me. Are you stretching out it's your warm. back? It's warm. I, I tried to. I put together a manual treadmill yesterday, which is sitting next to me. But what <laughs> I didn't realize is that manual treadmills come with an incline. Uh-huh. And uh, all of a sudden, the nice leisurely walk I thought I was taking has got me uh, drenched in sweat at every opportunity. It's a start. So that's good. So tell me a bit about your path to leadership, Drew, and what you're doing now. Yeah, I think my path is a complete accident. If you talk to enough people who really love what they do, you'll usually find that they had absolutely no idea this is what they were going to be doing. I was supposed to be a lawyer. When you're in high school and you get really good grades, if you like science, you go to med school. And if you don't, you go to law school. That's just how it's supposed to work. So I went off to university planning to go to law school and study history. But it turns out, and this impacted my life down the road, it turns out that I didn't love history. What I loved were good stories. And it just so happened that most of my teachers who taught me history in high school were extraordinary storytellers. And what happened when I got away to university, and this is something that I discovered, is that a lot of the people who teach in high school love teaching. And a lot of the people in university who quote unquote teach love research. And so what ended up happening was I just wasn't engaged. There were no stories to be told in the world of academic history, it seemed. 
And so I ended up being a little bit lost at university until I got involved in some fundraising activities, until I started my own small company with a friend of mine and started to realize that engaging with the world was a lot more interesting than writing papers on it. And specifically, one of the things I got into was this fundraiser, this charity to fight cystic fibrosis here in Canada. And that led to a complete 180 in what I planned on doing with my life. And ultimately, I started to realize the impact you could have. And I thought that I wanted to be a fundraiser because we made so much money for various charities and university. All right, I want to be a fundraiser. What I didn't realize was that what I loved doing was building teams, setting goals and chasing those goals. It just so happened that all of the goals we set were fundraising goals. Once I got into the world of professional fundraising, I realized, yeah, I don't like fundraising. I like building teams. And eventually, as I was still involved in the charity, I started creating these workshops on how to do it better. The Dean of Students at the University of Toronto saw some of these workshops. He contacted me and said, we want to build a leadership program at the university that isn't all about theory and things that aren't necessarily applicable to young people right now. We want to talk about what they can do now and the way that you approach leadership and the what you're doing right now is exactly it. And I said, look, that's not what I do. And he said, well, why don't you try it? And I wasn't happy with what I was doing. And I said, all right, we'll give it a shot. And that was eight years that I was at the University of Toronto building their leadership program, developing new ideas, working with some extraordinary students. And some of these social experiments in which we engaged at the university led to some of the work that I'm doing now. And eventually it got to the point where the only thing keeping me from doing what I loved full-time and spreading some of these ideas and things and processes we developed was my full-time job. And when that stopped being fulfilling, even though it took about a year and a half longer than it should have, because the three most addictive things on the planet are crack, carbohydrates, and a salary, we are so often addicted to our salaries. Can you say that again? I've never heard that before. Oh, <laughs> this is actually a friend of mine taught me this. The three most addictive things on the planet are crack, carbohydrates, and a salary. And if you allow yourself to get addicted to any one of those three things, you will start making decisions that are not in your best interest. And what happens often is there's nothing wrong with having a salary. There's nothing wrong with seeking one. Most of us will spend most of our lives working for somebody else, and that's fine. There's a difference, though, between wanting a good salary and achieving one and working hard for it and being addicted to it. And many of us get addicted to our salaries, and we are seeing that right now, particularly and I think all of us knew that, that we spend more money than we have. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And now it's coming into very, very sharp focus that most of us created a life where we are addicted to our salaries. We spent more than we had. We got ourselves overextended. And I think that a lot of us are seeing that now. But I did not leave my job, even though it made me miserable, because my money was more important than my mental health and my spiritual health, et cetera. So it wasn't until I finally realized that the only reason I wasn't leaving my job is that I was afraid that I'd end up with less than what I had now, that what I'd end up with was worse than what I had. It's why any of us don't make a change. We're afraid that what we'll end up with is worse than what we've got. However, when you realize that you don't like what you've got very much, then you got to kind of decide whether you're going to take that leap. And that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing. I took a process that we developed at the university on how to take our aspirational behaviors and using behavioral psychology, make it more likely we'd actually act the way we want to, 
that I've taken out into the world and have been spreading that idea. We call it operationalizing leadership values. The idea that you identify the values for which you want to stand, and then here is an actual process to make sure that you stand for them. Because it's real easy to say that I care about integrity and I care about accountability and I care about empowerment, but it's really hard for me to turn to someone who says, well, I care about empowerment and say, well, give me a specific example of anything you did today that lives up to that value. Most of us can't answer that. And so what I tried to do with the students there and what they helped me do is develop a process that actually makes you do that, that provides evidence to yourself that these things that you claim to stand for are actually things that you stand for. That's a lot of amazing information. And at the time of this interview, we're experiencing the global pandemic of the coronavirus. And when you think about operationalizing leadership values, how has this impacted what you do? You know, that's a really interesting question. One, it has completely changed my weekly experience. I don't really have a daily experience because my job had me on the road 250 days a year. So the most significant change is that I have been home now for what five weeks. Actually, I don't think in the last nine years I have had five weeks where I haven't been on a plane. Last year, I did eight weeks uh, where I wasn't on the road after the book release that I had, but I still traveled during that time. So on a personal level, I'll be straight with you. There's a level of guilt associated with this. This has been good for me personally in terms of my mental and physical health. I did not realize how burnt out I was until I didn't have to go running around. Mm -hmm. And once that happened, for me, this has actually been incredibly regenerating in terms of being home, allowing myself to eat properly. Because I used to be 320 pounds, then I was down to 200. And after the book came out, I was back up to 250. And now, you know, it's 20 pounds since this started happening because I can eat properly. So I'm guilty about the fact that when people say, how are you doing? My answer on a personal level is better. And I know that's not the experience of most people. And I also know that there's a privilege to that. The fact that I was born as a straight white guy in Canada is enough of a privilege to begin with. The fact that I have a job that overpays me is a privilege as well, which allows me to actually take time now and not feel freaked out about by what's going on, but actually feel as if I'm recovering a little bit. On a business side, it's devastating like everyone else. Luckily, I'm in a position like not a ton of people are where I sort of was prepared for this type of thing. You have enough friends who are financial advisors. Eventually, you have a four-month little reserve mm -hmm. off in the back. Mm -hmm. And on my family, I'm really concerned for my family. My father has COPD, a respiratory illness. My mother, they're both in their 70s. So obviously there's concern there. So a mix of emotions like anything else. It has completely changed my weekly experience as a person. But in terms of living values every day, I have six key values that I try to live on a daily basis that are tied to six questions. So I have a leadership test every day that I try to get three out of six questions. And they're tied to six values. And so one of the values is impact. And so every day I try to ask myself, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? That can still happen. I have a cool little surprise plan for someone later today. As a matter of fact, for that, it's a two-year anniversary of working with my COO. And he thinks I have forgotten that. But this afternoon, I have a surprise for him. <laughs> Two is courage. What did I try today that might not work, but I tried it anyway? Now there's time to actually sit down and do new things. And some of them scare me, particularly in the world of virtual. It's a whole new game out there. Growth, what did I do today to make it more likely someone would learn something? 
I'm constantly watching a how-to video every single day now, and I'm trying to do things like this and do Q&A sessions, particularly with virtual classrooms now to help people sort of learn new things, whether it's me or somebody else. Empowerment, what did I do today to move someone else closer to a goal? That can still be done, as a matter of fact, whether it's sending a surprise to someone, whether it's a book or something I know that they've been looking for, and the last thing they're going to do is spend their money now, so maybe I can. Whether it's doing a podcast, right? You have to put out a podcast regularly and you want it to be high quality. Well, hopefully I can provide you with one of those. There's class. When did I elevate instead of escalate today? Leaders elevate situations whenever possible, which means trying to succeed. They don't escalate, which means trying to win. And self-respect. What did I do today to be good to myself? That is my sixth question. It's probably the one upon which all others have to be built. And hey, that's why I built this little uh, treadmill over here because, (laughs) hey, it just got hard. You go out walking, you try to go solo, but there's still those people out there for whom their inconvenience is not worth the safety of others. And eventually it got to the point where I realized, look, if I'm going to want to exercise, I got to do it inside. And so that's how I try to be good to myself every day. So that continues to be my fundamental goal as a person and a leader every day. It doesn't have to do with positions or my business. It has everything to do with whether or not I found a way to answer three of those six questions. And those three things do not require proximity, all right? They can all be done virtually. And so my business in terms of making money, gone. Myself in terms of trying to live myself, that involves adjustment but doesn't have to change. And all I can do is hope that my mom stops going out and running errands. I can't convince her to do that, but we'll keep trying that as well. You know, I love how high energy you are. I can feel it through. (laughs) I've had a lot of coffee. (laughs) I think that's great. I mean, I get energized by people like you. I get energized by books I read, podcasts I listen to. You know, there's an ebb and flow. There are times when I'm down. And especially during this time, I'm a very connected person and I need hugs and affection. So what resources, quotes, or advice has helped you most during those times? You know what? It seems that way. And I appreciate that because I like knowing that somehow the energy I'm bringing is impacting people. I'm actually a very solitary person, not only by choice, but if you think about a life that puts you on the road all the time, being alone is not unusual for me going long periods of time without contact with someone that I know closely, I spend most of my life with strangers, which means even when you're with people, you can feel relatively alone. So this has been a different type of solitude, but it's not a huge departure from who I usually am. I'm actually an introvert. I'm finding that most introverts are doing pretty well. Most introverts are just like, (laughs) yes, but they're keeping it quiet, right? Because extroverts rule the world. And most people assume I'm an extrovert because of the, I don't know, my personality is big and I stand in front of people for a living. And for those who don't know this, and I didn't like five years ago. So I was, you know, in my late thirties before I knew this fact, introversion and extroversion is in no way related to how outgoing you are or how big your personality is. Introversion and extroversion is determined by how you gain and lose energy. And so extroverts gain energy from interpersonal interactions. The more they interact with people, the more energized they get. Introverts lose energy as they interact with other people. Now, that's not to say their interactions are quiet. Like, this is how I interact with people, but I will be exhausted after this. Well, a true extrovert will be bouncing off the walls and can't wait for more. So I'm actually a real introvert. Doing what I do completely empties me out physically, emotionally, and psychologically. And so... This isn't a huge departure for me. In some ways, and I think for a lot of introverts, it's welcome 
the thing is we just keep it to ourselves because the extroverts are struggling with it so significantly that you know it's almost as if we feel bad that we don't also recognize that but also realize that things have shifted now for the first time in a long time this is now the world of introverts versus the world of extroverts and so hopefully when we emerge from all of this we all have a little better understanding of the reality of other people now what's helping me through this is some things that you'd expect and some not one the opportunity to do this every now and then because even as an introvert the opportunity to talk to people like you and share ideas energizes me while i'm doing it even while sometimes just before or a day before i'm like oh god i'm not looking forward to it a bunch of things from my past has really played a role here back when we were running a lot of events in the university with our production company there was a mantra about when things were not going right as you were planning things and it was my friend mark who i co-founded things with always used to say it's all going to be okay in the end if it's not okay it's not the end mm. and there was just a power to that the other thing too is that i always try to remember this well this is an honest question to you can you give me an example or the last time in your life where you faced a challenge that you failed to overcome no you have degrees of challenges right some are harder than others but as far as overcoming no you get through you know yeah and and what's interesting is that because you're still here that is evidence that you have never failed to overcome a challenge that you faced now you may not be happy with how you overcame it you may have scars from it but you've overcome everything you've ever faced in your life because you're still here you are batting 8000 on overcoming things that means there is no actual empirical evidence that you will fail to get through something and any time i'm in a position like that i remind myself that there is absolutely zero example of me failing overall there's none it doesn't diminish the discomfort that you feel and it doesn't make it suck less but it is i think silly to assume that something that has never happened is more likely to happen than something that has happened every time right if something happens 100% of the time it is foolish to expect that the next instance is going to be different than what you've seen before. So I always try to remember that. There is no instance in my life or your life that you have failed to get through. Not to say that it hasn't been difficult or that you've been wounded. And maybe this is dark, but there is a superpower that I have that some other people on the planet have and a lot don't. And I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I will say this. 3 years ago January, the only person I've truly been in love with in my life died by suicide very suddenly and myself and her sister were the person who found her wow and so there is a peace and a strength that comes from knowing that the worst thing that could ever happen to you has already happened and mm. so one of the things that gets me through this is that look i have been through alcoholism living with bipolar and finding the woman i loved on that day If you want to take me down, you better bring something more than COVID. You better bring some goddamn kryptonite. And mm. so that's what's helping get me through it. And as much as we don't like to think about the worst days of our lives, for most of us, the worst days of our lives have been worse than this. And if we got through that, we can get through this. And I think that sometimes we try not to think about the worst things that have ever happened to us, and I don't think we should dwell on them, but I do think that we should always keep them ready. not as something to hurt us but as something to remind us of our profound power
Because if we got through the worst day of our lives, we can get through shitty days in our lives. There's a difference between the two. Profound power. I love that. You talk about your days. You, you mentioned your book, which I have here. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> the paperback is out with the little bestseller button oh, on it. I'm very excited. Oh, Plus, fantastic. it's super light. All right. So tell us about your book. Tell us about how we can connect with you. Oh, the book is called This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. And it basically is a step-by-step process of walking yourself through this operationalizing leadership values. It talks about how to identify your values, because most of us actually don't know what they are, uh, how to define them, and then how to actually do this process of creating your own test, how to take a value, turn it into a question, and embed that question into your life. It also has sort of my cumulative life's wisdom. God, that's weird to say. Basically, it came down to this. You start giving speeches, you got 60 minutes, and then you keep living. And over the course of those years giving 60-minute speeches, you learn and are told a lot more brilliant stuff. You meet incredible people, but you still only get 60 minutes, which means you start to accumulate all this stuff you want to share with other people. And I want to be clear, the book isn't actually a whole bunch of my stuff. It's the story of what we developed at the university, but the biggest lessons in the book come from other people. And what eventually happened was I had all of these stories about this brilliant wisdom that people had given me that had been so useful to me, and I didn't have room for it in the speeches anymore. So that's where the book came from. And the six questions I just gave you, the six that emerged from this process that we developed, what I try to do in the book is share stories behind each of those six values, from impact and growth, the best lessons I've been given from the leaders that I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. And the thing about the book is it's not about CEOs. It's not about people with titles. It's about individuals that I hope everybody who reads the book finds somebody within this book to whom they can relate. Because the messages come from seven-year-olds. They come from retirees. They come from two guys who stormed the beaches at Normandy. They come from cab drivers and limo drivers that I've been lucky enough to interact with. Janitors are a huge piece too. So there's really a lot of stories in there that talk about, let's redefine what leadership means because we evaluate our leadership over blocks of time. You know, how we've done this quarter, how we've done this year, this five-year plan, where we are in our career lifetime, where we fall on the spectrum of economic compensation. And I don't think that we recognize that leadership at its core has to be determined on a daily basis. And what I do is I draw on some of my personal experiences, whether it's losing the weight whether it's dealing with alcohol, whether it's dealing with bipolar, whether it's in the aftermath of Anastasia's death. What happens is what gets you through difficult times is identifying the non-negotiable behaviors that have to be a part of every day of your life and then treating it like it's the first day of that voyage. And because on day one, there's this inherent commitment, there's an inherent humility, there's an inherent forgiveness every single day on day one. And what you're capable of on your 100th version of day one or your thousandth version of day one will always be more than your first day. But as long as you make sure that each day of your life has those non-negotiable behaviors in them, that's what drives you forward. And the book is all about how to make that happen for you. And it does come. It comes from the mix of leadership theory that I used to teach at the university and real life experience. Because what you learn in recovery from alcoholism is if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, you got to choose not to have a drink today. And then you got to treat every day of the rest of your life as if it's your first day of recovery. And that to me is really the core. You want to lead, you have to identify these behaviors. Like for me, not having a drink is my first priority every day from getting up and going to bed. 
Everything else can be different every day, but there's one thing that never changes. You do not have a drink today. Priority one. And day one leadership is about, look, every day in your life is going to be different, but there are non-negotiable things that must be a part of it. And for me, it's you better live three out of six of impact, growth, courage, empowerment, class, and self-respect. And the book helps people figure out what their values are and how to make sure that they're a priority and treat every day of their life that is their first day of living as a value-driven person. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you want to find, claim, develop, and expand your voice in order to land that job, those clients, or that partner, then Master Your Swag podcast is for you. You don't have to have expert credentials to be featured, and you can select from several plans that can perfectly match your needs. Go to MasterYourSwag.com and claim your spot as a guest and be ready to get noticed. That's MasterYourSwag.com. I appreciate how you're just pouring your heart out. You certainly walk the talk. Now, I'm sure our listeners really get that as well. How can we connect with you and how can we get your book? See, this is why my publisher hates my guts. I have to I keep you on point like, here. I know. They're the same thing. They're like, why don't you talk about it on stage? Because like, people hate that, right? <laughs> like if you have ideas that people like, they'll probably be like, oh, I'd like to read the book. So here, drewdudley.com. That's D-R-E-W-D-U-D-L-E-Y.com. And that's got not only where you get the book, it's also got an online program that you can do. And right now, we're not giving it away. What we've decided is to make it a fundraiser. It's usually 199 bucks. this online program that walks you interactive in five-minute blocks through the whole process. But we dropped it to 10 bucks, and we're giving all the profits to frontline healthcare workers right now. So it's available at truedudley.com as well, as well as videos. I've been lucky enough to do, gosh, I guess nine different TED or TEDx talks. And uh, you can find most of them there as well. The one that has attracted most people to my work is about lollipops called the lollipop moment or everyday leadership. And so all that stuff is on drewdudley.com. And if you want my daily sort of what's going on in Drew's life and leadership insights or just, you know, life nonsense at day one Drew, which is D-A-Y-O-N-E-D-R-E-W is where you'll find me on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Instagram's the most fun. I drive my social media people insane because they're supposed to manage my Instagram and I like popping in with my goofball stuff. Uh, and so being like, why did you post that? I'm like, I thought it was funny. I know a couple of people who do that. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, you hired us to do this. I'm like, I hired you to do the series. But this is a funny looking cookie and you should see the world. I love it. All right. So I have a question from a guest that I would love for you to answer. So this question comes from Dr. Gary Bodenberg. What are you doing to invigorate yourself during this time? You know what? Two things. I walk as much as I can. And as I mentioned before, I've had to move it inside. Although on occasion, I'll go out and smoke a cigar at night. I have one vice left since I gave up booze and I trying to stay fit. Cigars. And honestly, when you spend your whole day inside and then you go out and it's, the weather's getting warmer and the streets are absolutely abandoned late at night, I like going out and having a cigar. Even before all of this, I try to walk at least two hours a day because of that two hours, one, I could listen to whatever podcast I wanted. At least one hour has to be with no music, no audiobook, because all the psychological research shows how important being completely alone with your thoughts 
is and how much of a lost art that is. One of the things I've talked a lot about is about how scared we are to be alone with our thoughts mm. because we are aware of everything we've done that is less than the person we want to be. And because we'd rather not listen to ourselves, tell ourselves that we're being less than the person we want to be, we drown out that voice. I've always thought that the scariest time in most people's lives is that gap between when you turn off your screen and you put your head on the pillow and the time you fall asleep. From when you turn off your phone, your computer, your Netflix, and you fall asleep, it is just you and your mind. And that is among the scariest times in people's lives because that is the point where you have to reckon with how you are behaving and all of the things that you know you are doing that are less than the person you want to be. And people are so afraid of the gap, including myself. That is why we fall asleep watching TV. That is why we put music into our ears. We do not want to be alone with ourselves. Now, that is a problem because research shows that the parts of our brain that are most responsible for creativity, some of them are only activated when we're bored. And when I say bored, I mean you have no stimuli except that you create yourself. And we have created a world where we basically have eliminated those moments in our lives. So what invigorates me is an hour with my own thoughts, even the ones that are scary, even the ones that are diminishing, because you have to engage with those. And that's when you problem solve, and that's when you're creative, and that's when I get create new speeches or new videos. So that invigorates me. Once a day, I have to either treadmill inside, but I get outside for that walk. Take the time to walk. Just don't do it near other people. Fun. I have a question. Sure. Because this is so interesting to me, and I get what you're saying, because as you're talking about how people fall asleep listening to this, and I'm one of those people. I have to listen to something to fall asleep. And when I go for walks, I'm listening to something. So this is intriguing to me, and I want to put it into practice because I'm very curious about this. So what do you do? Yeah, well, one of the things I can often do is I pick a question or a series of questions ahead of time. You know what sometimes it is, is that if I have a podcast coming up, I ask people ahead of time for the questions so that I can sit and think about those. I'll sometimes reach out to friends of mine and to be like, what's the toughest question you've had to answer? As goofball as that is, and then you just kind of roll through it. I often, as hard as this is, will look back and think of the last time in my life where I behaved in a way I wish I'd behaved differently, and I run myself through what I would have liked to have done differently. I like to question why I made certain decisions. I think that if you have an hour to yourself, one of the things that you can really benefit from doing is actually paying attention to why you made certain decisions. Okay, I snapped at so-and-so in that situation. Why did I do it? And this is a really powerful psychological behavior that you know, psychologists will tell you they use in problem solving, is think of the last conflict you had with another person in your life, and then imagine it was being described by a third person who was looking at it from the outside. I'll spend hours while I'm walking doing that, looking at situations where I disagreed with someone or situations that have caused real uproar. And I will imagine that I'm reporting it as an outside observer and describing it. And it's an incredible exercise in empathy. So much of our lives we don't like reflecting on because one, it may involve us acknowledging we were wrong. And the psychological power behind keeping us from doing that is astonishing, right? Our brains cannot stand that. I just think that while you're walking alone, take the time to reflect on your decisions, why you made them. And that to me has been a really valuable piece because it often has shown me that I was probably wrong. 
or what will really do is it'll open my eyes to, oh shit, I bet you that this is true of them. And I never thought of that. Sometimes you look at people who've annoyed you and I ask myself, why would I have behaved that way? And man, that's a powerful question because we usually associate the way people behave as being all about us. Like, oh, that person acted like that because they were trying to screw me or because this. And then you start to think, well, when was the last time I behaved like that? And you realize it's because when your mom was sick or when somebody else had said something terrible and this is the next person to come along and you just double barreled on them. So I try to take an hour out of every walk to think about my decisions and how they impacted other people and to try to think about negative interactions and describe them as if I was a reporter reporting it from an objective position. And you'll find that sometimes more than an hour goes by when you find yourself doing that. <laughs> and you know what? There must be an introvert in me because I'm liking that. I think I'm an ambivert. How might I have been wrong is a powerful question. And yeah. You know, a lot of things we're seeing right now, even with what's going on in the world, is that people are just entrenched in being like, we can't let go of what we claimed for all this time because it messes up your reality. And I think there's an empathy that we have to get when people frustrate us, right? I'm like, how on God's green earth does Donald Trump still have 40% approval rating? It's not because people are stupid. It's because if someone asked you to completely change everything that you've thought for an extended period of time, it calls into question in your mind everything else that you've ever thought. Do you know how absolutely life-shattering that would be? It's almost as if someone said to me once, and, and I have some friends who are very, you know, faith is a big part of their life, and it's not for me. But if they said, look, if I brought you unequivocal evidence that God existed tomorrow, how much would that mess with your entire reality? And I'm like, it would mess me up a lot. And it would take some time because what it does, it makes you reflect back on your life and be like, oh my God, I was wrong so much. And does that mean I'm wrong every time in the future? So there's an empathy that comes from recognizing how other people see and recognizing that when we want people to change the way they thought to align with ours, we're not just asking them to change one perspective. We're asking people to look at themselves in the eye and be like, you have been wrong on so much in your life. That's an unfair thing to ask of people, especially when we can't say for 100% sure that they are. And so that hour that I spend with myself and in my own mind, sometimes asking myself, how might I be wrong has been really, really valuable. It sucked a lot. And sometimes you're like, no, no, I'm going back to this podcast. Uh, but I think it's really important. And then sometimes it's just like you write a letter to the editor in your own head because you choose that you want to stand for something. Or you think about a question or something that upset you and you start to really dive into what do I think about this? And we don't take time for that very often. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, as a listener of this podcast, what is a question that you would like a future leadership guest to respond to? Here's what I always like asking. We do a section called Leadership Lies that we're starting right now. We're collecting before we post it. And the question is this, what is a piece of life or leadership advice or wisdom that you see passed around all the time that you don't think is true or is flawed in some way? So what is a, a cultural cliche that gets thrown around all the time that you have an issue with? Maybe it's not that you disagree with it entirely, but you have an issue with it. The first time I ever asked that, the answer I got was, life is short. The guy I was talking to said, I can't stand it when people say life is short. Life is not short. Life is the single longest thing you will ever do. Hmm. And so make good decisions. I had someone tell me that, fake it till you make it. He goes, why do we tell people that? He said, first of all, 
what it does is it makes you believe that if you are doing something and you're not an expert at it, you're faking it. He said, fake it till you make it is actually saying practice till you don't suck. All right. When you're doing something that you're not great at, but you're still doing it, you're not faking it, you're practicing it. And so one of the things that someone said is that I don't like fake it till you make it. I've had people say, I don't like laughter is the best medicine because sometimes the best medicine is a glass of wine, a long bath and an incredibly long cry. Or a good cigar. So, or a good cigar. So really that's what I love asking leaders. And I love hearing what people say in that particular case. I wrote that down. So we will be asking it's, that. It's, yeah. It's not failure <laughs> unless you don't learn something from it. No, it's failure. So what's like, the it's other a failure one? you learn from. If it, doesn't ki- if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger? Yeah, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. Um, I have a whole lot right. of doctors who are like, <laughs> yeah, no. All right. So is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. Think of somebody in your life right now who would never call themselves a leader and tell them they are. And don't just say, do you matter to me? Call them a leader. Like, use the phrase. I think it's so important to recognize that leadership recognized is leadership created. And if we want to create more leadership in our lives and our organizations, we got to do a better job recognizing the stuff that's already there. And so I call on listeners to do one thing. I want you to pay more attention to the word just and how often you use it. The word just, J-U-S-T, it is one of the most powerful diminishers in the English language. We use it all the time and we need to stop using it quite so often because when we use the word just, we use it to describe what we're doing oh, I just have to pick up the kids. I just have to get to this meeting. I just have to write this email. And the reason we do it is we're trying to trick our brain into thinking it's not going to take very much time, right? But we have to realize that most of the things in front of which we put the word just are the things that take up most of our lives. And so what do you think it does to us psychologically when we diminish the things that take up most of our lives? And what happens is it eventually spills over into how we talk about what we do and who we are. I'm just a receptionist. I'm just a bus driver. I'm just middle management. I'm just a student. Every time we use the word just to describe who we are, what we do, I think we're giving people permission to expect less from us. And as a result, I think that what we have to do is every time we hear the word just come out of our mouth, the mouth of someone we care about, we should take a moment to say, was that just used as a diminisher? And if it was used as a diminisher, call people on it. You want to know an opportunity to recognize someone else's leadership, listen for that word. And every time you hear someone who you know is a person of worth, use that word as a diminisher, call them on it. That word we use way too often. Eliminate from your vocabulary as much as humanly possible because here's the thing. 90% of the time we use it, it is not used properly. It is used to diminish who we are or what we do. Thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners too. Thank you so very much for thinking enough of me to take up so much time with your listeners. Well, listen, stay safe and have a great day. Thank you so very much, you too. And take care of yourself. Stay healthy. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.